Welcome to a new episode of the Creative Industry Insight Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby. Today, we have director Dick Murphy, who joins us to talk about their work on the TV series Spy Amongst Friends. At the time of the recording, the series had just finished being rerun on ITV. In this episode, we'll take a deep dive into Nick's creative choices in crafting the show. Please be warned, there are heavy spoilers in this episode. Without further ado, let's jump into the conversation with Nick. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining me today. A pleasure. Nice to be here. Happy to be able to get something sorted and um, be able to talk about the TV show Spy Amongst Friends, which has had its rerun, sorry, on ITV recently, which is kind of unusual because I don't really see sometimes reruns in this sort of day and age of streaming and when people can get stuff on demand straight away um, and be able to access it so quickly. And so that must be quite a good feeling knowing that they're putting it out there again. It was. I mean, it was it was it was for uh, ITVX initially and it went out in December, I want to say last year. Um, it was a co-production between ITVX and MGM Plus, another streaming platform in the US. And I think I'm not plugged into the ITV board but I think the general feeling was that it was given this the they felt it was pretty high quality and the cast and that sort of stuff they didn't want to rule out putting it on the on on the on the the terrestrial service so they did that they they warned us they were going to do that we knew but at the time of um, you know last year that there would be a, a re-release I didn't expect it to be as quick but again I think that's a it's it's a flatter it's flattering that they uh that they got it out for the the size of audience they did I think as well, like uh, people of a certain g- uh, generation as well don't use streaming. And sometimes it's just easier to just have something there on the terrestrial side to watch it and sit down and have it as like a mainstay for a Sunday night. I thought also streaming, streaming audiences aren't that big. I mean, you and I, you know what I mean? We're in this world and we can't imagine it and we watch all loads of streams. We probably get all the streamers and all those sorts of things. A lot of people don't. Um, this latest um, Star Wars outing, Ahsoka, the 14 million globally or 14 million globally maybe maybe great for Disney Plus. I don't know. I'm not having. I'm not digging Disney Plus out, but it's it, it, a terrestrial outing in one evening in the UK can get six or seven. So in just the UK, I think it's nice when they broaden it. I think it's nice that the streamers are commissioning brave stuff. They've got a great role to play, and streaming is definitely where it's going. And there's there's obviously going to be a time when the terrestrial output doesn't happen in the same way, but uh, we don't broadcast in the same way. I think at the moment, audiences aren't that big. I mean, you and I can't imagine that there's people out there that haven't seen Succession, but there are millions and millions and millions and millions of people who haven't seen Succession. I know it's hard to think that like we are going to that way of streaming and then, then, then as you said, like sometimes these numbers are getting released and it's just like a, you, you would think with how many people are, how many people in the world who would have these streaming services and it's coming with such low numbers as you mentioned that mm. you'd get half of that mm-hmm. in the UK if it was on terrestrial and um, it kind of like mm. does blow your mind a little bit because 14 million is not something you can sniff at but then if you compare it to like a worldwide chart it's a bit like oh not even one percent of the world watch this yeah but but what was I going to say as well um oh how have you found the reaction to the show because well, it's probably close to a year now that it would have debuted at London Film Festival, which were, which was probably a massive thing for you as well. How have you found the audience reaction the first time, and then also now with the second with the second run? 
I, very good. I mean, um, I, I probably would come on a show like this and say this anyway. I'd probably say, oh, yeah, we're very pleased. But no, but I was really taken aback by it. We we weren't that interested in in you've got enough to do when you're making a show. You 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 make you you don't just make the show for yourself, of course, but you do you can't be constantly second guessing an audience. You've got to feel what are what are we giving the audience? What 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 is what is a first time viewer of this feeling, seeing, learning, not learning, what are we hiding from them, etc. But you don't really think of the um, oh, I hope they like this. I hope this goes across. I hope we win something. I, you know, you you don't really sort of work on any of that until you, until your phone buzzes after the, after it's released. If I'm honest with you, but we've been very uh, Alex and I and and everything I'm going to say this see uh, you know today on this cast when I use the word we, it almost invariably will 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 Alex Carey the the writer will be one of those people included in that we however narrow that we gets he he was my absolute rock my inspiration my boss my uh writer um my friend you know he was astonishing um and we were just out to make sure that the the film the series and we always talked about it like a film a six-hour film that it was that it was a piece of filmmaking that it felt like a muscular piece of modern filmmaking, although it was steeped in period and we wanted the authenticity of the period and we can talk about how we achieved that and why I did it the way I did it. But we wanted it to be a self-assured piece of filmmaking and the feedback we've got is absolutely from that. And that's that's from the audience's um, enjoyment of it. The, the, they seem to have loved the fact you need to work at it, you need to pay attention, you need to uh, think back and contemplate. But within the industry as well, uh, the feedback we've got from other filmmakers, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to start dropping names, but the emails I got from massive heroes of mine, legend, legendary filmmakers, in response to this show more than any other, actually, that I've made, has been very flattering. Um, I was almost a bit weepy when one of them arrived. I couldn't believe he would know who I was. One, getting the praise from your peers is always a good thing because you said if you're getting people that you've admired coming up to you at the woodwork and giving you praise, that's always, like, no matter what, you'll probably be, you know, whatever cloud nine is, times that by 100. <laughs> and then, yeah. uh, but then on top of that, if you have people connecting to it and are interested in what's happening, and then, as you said, like, you need to pay attention to it. And that's a big thing as well now, like, as audiences, you know, Attention span is a little bit lower, especially with your phones. But when you have to watch something like this where, you know what, phone has to be put put into another room and then put all your focus on this, that's also like a testament to both you and Alex uh, when it comes to like making something like this and crafting it as well. He was Alex was intent from the very beginning that it would the the, the fractured timeline what he wrote jumping around, but we both settled quite early on the on the agreement that we wouldn't caption where we were. So the story takes place, for those at home, the story takes place in London in 1963, in Beirut in 63, in Moscow in 63, but also in Istanbul in the 40s and Vienna in the 30s and Washington in the 60s and all over the place and and Berlin in the, in the 60s. We didn't want to have to be, we didn't want to have to be captioning this every cut because you okay, occasionally you're doing it for a few seconds and then diving back into Moscow. You're in London for a few seconds and then back into Berlin. But we developed visual ways of making sure that the audience did actually intuitively feel where they were. Rather, and that doesn't mean you know showing statues of Lenin everywhere. But it, but there's a, there are ways of of, uh, of 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 lending the audience a little bit of help. But I think that served 
a great deal to say, okay, I, I'm I'm once you buy into that as an audience quite early and that that jump around happens quite early in the first episode. Once you buy into, okay, that, that's the grammar I'm having to follow. That's the grammar I'm absorbing. I think you're on board and people have gone with it. And we've had absolutely no complaints about the clarity of any of that. And we were, and it goes, to, it it reminds me actually, I think audiences, even mainstream audiences are smarter than people give them credit for. And they want to, there is a, there is a type of confusion that makes an audience lean back, which is bad. And there's a type of confusion that makes them lean forward. And I, I and I think the, 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 the hidden in this, the question marks that this show um, throws at you um, make you lean forward rather than back, and I think that's that's proved successful. And and it's it's a lesson to us because because you don't know until you've made it that that's going to work. I think to add on top of that with the sort of stylistic choice of confusing audience, I'll put confusing as air quotes because I think it's more the subject matter of it being spies, and because you're looking at it's kind of like the lens of the story is kind of told in diff- through different perspectives so that it's always going to be slightly skewed to be more positive in terms of who you're look- looking at it through it's like when they say there's always like three sides to the story there's your side their side and then there's the truth and that's the way that i kind of viewed it whilst watching it 100 percent. Um, point of view is point of view is terribly important it's a really good point robert um it was essential every scene is seen is put through somebody's point of view and that point of view can change within scene. frequently does but um, at no stage did we want to be just dryly watching from the corner of the room. It's a difficult balance because there's, I think if there's one thing that, that I think identifies the visual style of the, or characterizes the visual style of the show, there's a, there's a key decision that directors need to make very early, that I think directors need to make very early in a project, is, is their camera, are they the filmmaker, are they the master storyteller, or, or are they the witness and primarily the stories I get most interested in, get drawn to as pieces of work and scripts are the latter. I like to learn things as characters learn them and be present only um, and be seeing things only in as much as they see them. I don't like to know more than characters. Now, I've made films a, a different to that, and I think there are certain things you make in supernatural films, you need to be able to do that and all that sort of stuff, but um, you need to depart from that. But what we did with this was I witnessed, put people in a room. I wanted to, to, to put the audience in the room and, and very much immerse them in the experience of being in the room with these people, but nonetheless tell it through point of view. So you And you're right, that immediately produces a, a qualification to the truth, a, a corruption of the truth based on delusion, on favor, on prejudice, on, on whatever it be, on loyalty. That, that the audience could in, could themselves enjoy and 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 feel and feel the feel what the characters felt when they were misled they were uh, lying to themselves they failed to notice they inferred the wrong thing they uh, implied a dangerous thing all of these things um so as a filmmaker that tenet was very dominant throughout the whole putting together of all the scenes and there's, there's 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 once you find your main tenets of your of your project and your visual grammar you should be you continue to ask yourself in every setup is this part of it is this contributing to it is this obeying that rule and if it isn't it better be breaking it with a good reason because audiences won't forgive you if you just jump around and don't tonally produce something consistent it's a very it's very well noticed robert not to flatter you but the the everything is obsessively point of view in it and that's and for people who professionally lie 
and for people who are going back and analyzing and remembering a relationship that absolutely, by virtue of the story, did not mean what it appeared to mean at the time. That is a fascinating way, I think, a fascinating way of presenting that story. It's shown early on that Kim is a double agent and has been working for the KGB, mm. which I think, mm. I haven't read the book, so I can't comment on that side, but I think it's a very brave thing to do because you kind of get that part out of the way straight away so that when, instead of having that as like a twist later on, you have that already out out in the open and then now as audiences you kind of i feel like then like as audience members you're you're working back with the character to figure out where you've gone wrong because as you said as well like you're going to be blinded by your friends or the charm of how people are and then it's like how did i miss something like this how did this big thing get completely missed by all of us i think it goes to the relationship but absolutely right it goes to the relationship we're talking about two people who are best friends it's the it's the it's a tragic platonic relate friendship this uh, love affair this the between nicholas elliott and kim philby they were very very close friends and kim philby obviously um was lying to him all those years and something that damien said quite early in rehearsal was a comparison to marriage he said when you if you discover your partner is cheating on you your partner of 25 years is cheating on you surely you would go back and start to think did any of it mean anything did she ever love me did it, I know it's gone wrong now, but when did it go wrong? At what stage did it? Did she ever love me? And and that underpinned a lot of what we were doing as well, because of course that's that's the the that's the structure of what Alex presented, which is the to whilst this espionage plot is playing out and we and and Elliot is trying to assess the extent of the damage caused to the intelligence service, who he can trust. Is he himself going to end up in prison? Is he himself guilty as he is being investigated? They are at the at the same time behind that. Kim and Nicholas Elliott are are, are analysing their own relationship in the past, and and Kim is doing it just as much as Nick is. Kim Philby played by Guy Pearce and uh, uh, Nicholas Elliott played by Damien Lewis. So the the uh, that reliving of 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 meaning and the reanalysis of things um, has to happen in the background between behind the motor plot of of uh, the the incredible trouble that Nicholas Elliott appeared to be in when he got back from Beirut. Um, which, if somebody hasn't seen this show, they will understand what I mean. In the moment uh, quite early in episode one, they'll understand what I'm talking about right now. Yes, and even like scaling back from all of that because you have great and I, I do want to get onto your rehearsal process because I'm curious about something but I'll get back to that in one moment but I think your Damien was right about having it as a marriage because then it's like is everything just a lie everything's built and those flashbacks as well where they're kind of like tender friendship moments of just two friends enjoying their lives and when you see these sort of moments you kind of feel heartbroken for Nicholas at the same time because as you said like is this just all been a lie are these sort of sacred moments that in memories that you've had with one another of camaraderie and you know kind of being in the field with one another really just just the way to get in deeper with uh, what's happening and then I think you kind of see it in the last episode when they are in Beirut and Kim wants to do the um the skit of the uh, colonel asking mm. Nicholas, uh, how does your wife know that you work for SIS? And N Nicholas is just not having any of it. And it's a bit like, no, it's kind of done now. Yeah, it's broken by then, isn't it? 
um, the friendship is broken and the joie de vivre that produced that that little routine they used to do. And I love the way Alex bookends the their friendship with that that routine. And one is filled with with warmth and silliness, and the other is is um, is dry and empty. And that was my job to make sure they they were exactly that. Yeah, I uh, I, I I can remember ringing Alex quite early. We, he was still in LA. He lives in LA. I remember ringing him quite early and saying, I'm not sure there's enough plot. Uh, I was slightly concerned there isn't enough plot for six hours. And he said, for a spy thriller. And he said, yeah, but it's not a spy thriller. We're not making a spy thriller. We're making a, a story about friendship among people who are spies. And the spy thriller must come from the the shrapnel of that explosion the explosion of the friendship rather than it being an espionage plot in and of itself. And, and this is where another example where I've learned so much from Alex because he was, he was spot on. And it's not, it's not that we never looked at making sure we had enough plot. We would always re revisit that along the way. And is there a way we can, have we got enough? Have we got enough? But uh, he, he, he was resolute in keeping it to be a bit of a thing about friendship and, and love. And, and, and I think that is what pulls it and elevates it beyond just the drama of, um, of of regular espionage, I think much in the way that we thought, you know, George Smiley's in the background of all his stories is his failed marriage, his crumbling personal life. Um, we just turned those those dials up a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, George Smiley in those stories because I think Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is loosely based on a spy amongst friends. I read that somewhere. I can't remember. I can't. Please don't quote me, and please don't. Yeah, let me if I've got it wrong uh, in the comments, but it's um, it's just so as you said as well. Like, oh, we, the people would forget that it's not necessary. It's like because you have that spy angle, but it's all about that core friendship and the whole idea. Well, of do you know what? I, I don't, I don't know. You're wrong. And what I will go further and say that I know Ben McIntyre was walking in Hampstead with David, um, Cornwall, uh, John Le Carey, um, David Cornwall, um. And Day and John and Ben said to David, uh, "I what's not, I haven't got another story. I need another story. I can't. I don't know what I'm writing next. I don't know what it is." And he said, "What would you do if you were going to write a factual thing? What would you do?" And he said, "The Nick Elliott and Kim Philby friendship is is the great untold, is as yet untold story of British espionage." And um, so he was inspired. John Carey inspired that to be written. And I I don't doubt that. When he wrote Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, he was well aware of the details of Elliot and Philby's um, friendship, and indeed the the defection of Elliot, uh, the defection of Philby. It was those guys, though, those existence of those guys that um, the, that inspired the notion for Tinker Tailor, where there is, you know, there is a guy hidden in there, and and indeed after Philby had defected, there was still a fifth guy that everybody chased their tails spending years trying to work out who it was. Now our story goes into that a little bit, but, um, and I'm certainly not going to say now what the conclusion of that is, but yeah, I don't doubt, I don't doubt for a second that this story had a great deal to do with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It also had a great deal to do with the visual styling and the, the sort of shabby nature of the, the world our story took, takes place in. It's a very different thing, but it was one of the key, um, key visual references um for 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 me when and nano and uh and the design team as we we're putting it with paul spriggs as we were putting the show together it's, that's an interesting sort of fact to hear as well um a conversation that people have about oh, what would you do next but uh, i do like that how you use tinker taylor soldier spies 
a great reference because that's probably one of my favorite films has been made and i did have that sort of feel would you say that would you say the film robert or the tv series so the confession i've got the tv series on dvd i haven't seen it uh but i've say it would say well, the, the, film. T- the tv series was the the tv series was the visual inspiration for me not the absolutely not the film i didn't um i didn't do with the film really but i'm pleased to hear you loved it that's great okay Super I'll, put, I'll put my hands up there am i a mistake sorry <laughs> that's fine <laughs> uh but with <laughs> But when you have sh- sh- spy shows and films that have come before you, because like the spy genre is so vast in terms of you can go from something like James Bond to then something like this to then something recently like Slow Horses. In terms of creating that visual language and style, um, how do you go about that and discussing it with your crew and how you how you want to sort of go about to distinguish uh, the different at different locations but then also the way that yeah. people are living as well it's quite a it's quite a broad set of tasks there one of the key things when you're starting either starting a series because it's sometimes series are made by more than one director you would do the first you know the first two and then somebody else do the second the third and fourth or whatever uh and, and they shoot it in blocks i know you know this i'm just uh filling the your listeners in when you are st- when you are kicking it off, either doing all of it in this case, I did all of the show, or kicking it off. It's it, it's so imperative, not just that you have good ideas. Yeah, okay, anybody can have good ideas. It's imperative that they are serving the script. That's imperative. Otherwise, you're you're sunk. It's also imperative the script needs to be good enough to be worthy of serving. But good ideas are no good if nobody else knows them. You've got to communicate those to your collaborators because they're the experts. So Paul Spriggs, my designer, Nanu Segal, my DOP, Alex, my writer, he had to be on board with what it is I was trying so he could then contribute. Um, nobody can, can contribute unless they know what it is we're making. And I see a lot of shows, a lot of shows that you think, oh, that should be good. Why isn't it great? It should be great. It's usually because 300 people have done their best work on the show it's they're just all making slightly different shows and and i think that you know there are very there are very notable examples of that and i you know i don't want to i don't want to dig out rings of power but that, that's a that's a that's a classic case in point for me that there was the stylistic sort of inconsistency that i i can't even i'm not even going to blame whose fault it was for that i you know i'm not going to get into that because you know better directors than me have made have made shows that haven't worked uh, and will continue to, and I'm sure I have and do and will and, you know, but it's imperative they know that. So one of the, one of the things I had to s- settle on quite quickly is what what show did I want to make? And, and and the most important thing was to figure out that Alex, make sure that Alex and Sony and ITV, Sony with the, with the studio behind it, Alex and, and Sony and ITV and our other partners were on board with what it is I had in mind, but most particularly Alex and I had to know we wanted to make the same thing. So we went for we we had the yeah, we had the interviews and we all that business we jumped through those hoops and we made it clear we we respected each other and then we went frankly and got drunk together where we 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 had a few beers and we absolutely drilled down into what do we want to do what do we want to make I, to be absolutely sure consistency of tonal vision consistency of ideas and a willingness to interrogate and test those ideas among yourselves is imperative and this show. I've been lucky enough to work on a great many shows that have been very well received. And I'm very, very lucky to work with the people I have. This show, as much, at least as much as any other thing I've done, was an exemplary 
was a perfect example of how to build a show, how to structure a show, the working ethos, the the character relationships on set among your correct creative collaborators, the respect shown, the fun had, the communication between from me to my collaborators. It was exemplary. And uh, I, 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 it's so important because it, it, it really is. And if Alex was here, he would absolutely endorse this. The, it's so important that it's led properly and so important it's led respectfully and clearly with clear instruction and clear ambition. So getting all that in a row, very important. What mattered to me was often what you don't like is pretty inspiring. It's very useful to, to have things you don't like close to hand when you're building a show because you're able to say, when people can't see what it is because they have, you, you haven't made yours yet, you, there's something you, you don't, I, you know, I don't want to make a show and say, hey, let's make it like this. So everybody can look at it and go, okay, yeah, he wants to make it like this. He wants to make it like this. That's no good because we're just modeling on something else. So that what you are doing remains nebulous to a point until it's made. It remains uncertain until it's made. But not everybody can see it. But what they can see is 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 the negative. So I find very useful to say, look, I've got every respect for this series, every respect for that film, but I don't want that. That's not what we're doing because it's too clean, it's too modern, it's a or it's a it's a homage to the style of the sixties. That I did not want that. I wanted a I wanted a sixties that was struggling to get to its knees, a London that was struggling to get to its feet after the war, um, a Europe that was. A, a certainly a Moscow that was, um, and the shabby, dirty, depressed, doer, down, messy realities of that were very, very important. The other thing I wanted to be abundantly clear is these people were spies in a world full of non-spies. I didn't want this story to just operate in a world, you're in spy land, being spies, everybody spies, you go and do your spy stuff. I wanted the proximity of this ordinary, shabby, get-through-the-day life to always be evident. So I had a context for it. This is why we moved conversations out of private areas into cafes and onto buses. And the, so you felt there was a real world going on around you that didn't know about troop movements and betrayal and, and the Cold War. And they were just more interested in getting there, fixing their glasses and having a meal and going home and all the banalities of life. So communicating all of that to my team and that you can you can well imagine that goes into costume into location it goes into into um the the type of essays the type of supporting artists you hire um how many you hire what they're how, how visible they are how i'm uh, how invisible they are all of those things are informed by clear communication about what it is i want to do um i didn't want the background extras to hide so we could we could feel what we needed to feel so that's imperative. That's it's a it's a long winded answer, but the the months before you you call action, you need to have communicated to everybody what it is you're doing. You can't live in your own little bubble of I'm going to have some wonderful ideas when I'm on set. It just simply doesn't work that way. I think it's fascinating to hear the sort of process of sitting down with your head your head of departments and going through what you want and what you don't want. I think it's very easy to sort of make it like a really glossy looking show and be like, look how cool the 60s are and the trends of it all. But I think as well, because it's, I know the story itself is quite partly, partly dramatized, uh, but it is based on, on truth, on fact, sorry, uh, that you, you do want to be, what's the word? Um, uh, true to straight back. You don't, 
Sorry, true, true to itself you don't want to elevate it into into the world of fancy because it, it then it ceases to be shocking in, in cinematic land in worlds of glossy in glossy cinema land people betray each other all the time they betray the country they run off they kill people they do this they do that. I, I just think it's less exciting one of the one of the reasons i absolutely love paul greengrass's work is paul always puts these extraordinary events in real places in real time with real people and and that feels fucking shocking i i forgive my language if i'm not allowed to swear on this but that 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 shocks me because i think my god the the boat's been captured oh my god these soldiers are shooting innocent men the oh my god these whereas in cinema land that stuff isn't shocking and i think that's that's what what under you know drove a lot of what we were doing what we're doing in this and and what and those discussions they are sometimes general, but for example, when I'm sitting talking with Nano about that, how does that translate into photography? Well, of course, then once I've identified that, you can look to examples of what you admire people who've done that. And that Paul Greengrass didn't come up as much, but John Cassavetes absolutely did. And and so Nano and I could watch his films together and talk about what is it? What are they technically doing? invariably what are they technically not doing in order to play a straight bat to underpin their show with re- their film with reality um so we looked at the okay we're, we're not going to automatically put wrap light around everybody to give them nice a nice 3d shapes and lovely backlight and all these sort of things and instead nano and i could push ahead for what we think casavitis achieved which is a sort of ugly beauty an ugly beautiful compositionally absolutely spot on and compositionally incredibly important for communicating the subtext of the show putting a lonely characters against blank walls and putting them next to empty chairs and the, these sorts of those those very very well thought through compositional details but just not making it look like it's been taken hours to light in a studio but really making it look like it op- it operates in the real world and and nana would have to sort of censure herself no i want to put it a thing but i'm not going to because it's this isn't what we're doing and and that's a small example of those conversations that are replicated among every department every department let's let's step away from that step away from that step away from that we're doing this i guess you need to show that restraint as well because it's like i guess as like a as an example, a cinematographer, you do want to sort of show off what you can do with your lighting and camera movement, but then also keeping it restrained uh, to then be faithful to what you want to tell on screen. But moving away from like that sort of creative process, because you brought up earlier about the rehearsal process and how um, Damien was talking about the that, the way that their friendship is, is like a marriage and questioning everything that's happened. Uh, when it comes to talking with actors and like translating what they've seen on screen not on screen sorry it's translated what they've read on the page to the rehearsals and then putting it on to screen um where do you go about with helping them find their character but then also pulling these performances out out of them depends on the actor actually depends on the actor i don't i don't tend to rehearse in the traditional sense of let's run the scene run the scene you walk here you be by the door you I mean, plenty of very, very good directors. My hero of mine, Sidney Lumet, he he did that. He used to map out the sets on the floor and all that. I don't do that. In terms of finding the character, I, you know what? I've I've been lucky and worked with some pretty remarkable actors over the years, and the, the you're you're wasting them if you're not going to listen to what it is they 
see the character as and i i've never found i needed to force them into a different direction i've always been intrigued by what it is they see and what they want and that doesn't mean that every scene has to play the way they had in their mind but their character i think they you need to be very keen to hear how it is what 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 character they see it is there are limits to that i've had i've had actors say um i don't think my character would say this and I, i'm borrowing a a line from from an actor I work with, actually, um, Paul Bettany, a dear friend of mine now. But Paul's point, when anybody says, I don't think my character would say this, Paul would say, well, it says here you do. I don't know what character you're playing, but this one says exactly that. So, And that's a, that's a refreshing way of looking at it. So occasionally you do have to sort of talk with an actor and say, well, I, I think we need to just make sure we are on, aligned on what it is we're doing. But... By and large, they're well ahead of the pace. With with Anna Maxwell Martin, who plays the lead interrogator, the only fictional character, the only main fictional character in the in the Spy Among Friends, where we personified the MI5 investigation into Nicholas Elliott into one person, her, and she very much represents what they aren't. Um, she's not posh. She's not um, Winchester and harrow and eaton and all of that and she's uh, obviously not male and she's not of that um, establishment of oxbridge and indeed she has a um a a windrush black doctor husband she very much personifies everything that the that they aren't and everything that the service needed to turn into and if it was going to survive but anna anna doesn't need me to come and tell her what her character is she's she's the smartest woman in the room i mean i i i um, it's a shame to say that because she's also completely balmy, but she is fucking smart and she pretends not to be, but she is clever. And where what 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 you do as a director is just is just help to make sure that the right bits of that are being used and the right bits of that are making it on screen and the right bits of that are being developed properly, are being deployed properly, I should say. Uh, so I don't really rehearse. We do talk. I like to sort of sit with actors around a table. I think there's familiarity. I don't do any sort of trust exercise in that bollocks. I've heard, I heard recently of an act of a director wafting burning sage all over her, all over her cast. I mean, in rehearsal, I mean, give me a break. But uh, you know, each their own. But the I do. We talk and we talk about what's at play, what's in stake. We talk about imagery. We talk about um, not imagery that necessarily I'm using, but imagery that helps. A scene. I can remember with uh, first thing I did with Steve Graham. I've done, I think, five things with Steve now. But the first thing I did with Steve Graham was about soldiers in the army, British army, with Jimmy Nesbitt, brilliant actor. Jimmy and Steve. Um, Jimmy's a brilliant actor. But Warren Brown, another wonderful actor, and the three of them were very close friends in the story. And we we sat and talked and talked. And what do we talk about? We're not. We don't know the army. We're not experienced. We're not doing there. They're doing their research. I'm doing mine. But we're not sitting there talking about the army. But I asked them to play every scene like there is a, a three-way triangular chain between them with a hook that is hooked underneath their ribcage and their sternum that pulls them towards each other so as they are pulled apart by the circumstances of the film it hurts they want to go back they want to remain with each other they want to, but let this let the inevitable wrenching apart hurt those sorts of images you talk about you don't i don't tend to sort of work scenes occasionally will sort of run a scene off the page or sitting sitting around in order to if i've got points about pace about overlaps or whatever i did a show called save me for sky a few years ago uh the first season of that and and uh, that was very over overlapping dialogue and it was very important to test that before going to set one of the things i'd said to the writer lenny james who was also character one in the story 
was I don't think it'll pan out quite how he has written it. He wrote it as overlapping dialogue. And I was dead wrong. He, he said, well, let's see how it goes. I was dead wrong. It absolutely panned out, as he said it. But that needed to be tested in rehearsal to say, where does the timing lie? Are we imagining this? But by and large, my rehearsals are a chance to discuss and to get all of the stuff out that I don't want to be talking about with the lights on on set i don't want to be there going wouldn't it be better if i said this or what would my character feel about this or i don't understand why she chose to do that or get all of that out of the way and i love rehearsal but you are talking to somebody that loves every stage of what i do i'm i'm pathetic how enthusiastic i am about every stage i love i love reading scripts i love prep i love grading and casting and <laughs> shooting and editing and every time i'm in any one of those stages, I think it's my favourite stage. I love it. And, and But rehearsal is delightful. And also, I've got to say, actors get a bad rap. There's a lot of bad behaved actors out there. I've never, I haven't worked with many of them. Uh, so I've got to be very lucky. But they get a bad rap. Invariably, actors are incredibly interesting, incredibly inspiring people. And they're just bloody nice company. I, I And one of the most lovely things about shooting and rehearsing and shooting is just being with them. I love them. I love them, and and you know you this is this is why I fall in love with them really. Um, I fall in love with them, all of them. I mean, I get very very close, and gr I grieve afterwards. In fact, when I finish talking tonight, one of the actors I've worked with most, well, only one actor I've worked with more than Steve Graham, and he and that actor is coming over tonight, and just because I just you know it's for a Barbie because he's just such a loving fella, <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, so I I, I love that process. There's a lot to take in from the answer because there is, it's interesting to hear uh, how you work and the way that you're sort of interacting with actors and giving them instruction or not, or not giving them instruction. Um, and I think it's, it, it is funny at moments when actors do say, oh, I don't think that's what my character would say. And it's like, but that's part of the script that's what's been built up. And it's not, you just have to sort of read what's on the page and think about it i guess in a different sort of way in how your actor would yeah say i it. think i think they would it, it, it's often they're right in the sense that i don't think i would say anything there i think invariably there's a lot of writing that is i wouldn't say it's true of alex but there's a lot of writing that they, they say stuff that doesn't need to be said and they want it on the page and clear because they're writing this principally for executives or or whatever and they, they're not going to invariably be on set. So they want to make sure it's clear that she hates him. So she wants, so I want her to say, I hate you or whatever. But the, the, so right. So actors who sort of say, I don't need to say, I love you. Can I just order ice cream and make it clear? I love her. They're usually right. And so I, I do listen to that. It's only, it's only, I mean, I use that sort of rather facetious story because I think there is a discipline that comes with, um the script you're given and you want your first instinct should be to try and make that work but if, if but also be ready to give it up for a better idea um i don't i just don't, don't do it too quickly i, I if people are on set i, I work with michael sheen my second ever drama or something a, a show i'd written for a film i'd written for bbc and was directing and i offered him a line change on set i said michael you know that sounds a bit wordy do you want to and he goes no 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 we can't do that you can't let the bug in your ear the discipline is making this work. He says, now, this isn't short. This isn't Chekhov, he said, but you don't change Chekhov. So where between Chekhov and this do you start changing the script? 
it's you're going to exhaust yourself working out whether it's so good it can't change or so good just just make it work just work on making it work and of course he's an unbelievable professional lovely fella um unbelievable professional and that um that's a case in point and 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 it's until in lieu of better ideas i when i come on set i have good i have ideas i don't like they're going hey let's just see what comes out you know i've got very very firm ideas about how i want it to play but again i would be wasting my collaborative talent uh, my 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 collaborators talent if i overrode that and didn't listen to what this the, the amazing camera operators uh, camera, camera operators i've worked with have got to say about it or the amazing actors or the amazing dp or the or amazing writers i would be wasting it so what i tend to do is is just see where it plays just run the scene it's your office run the scene see where you land sit where you like let's have a let's have a little look at it and i i'll put my hand in the air if it's not working and it doesn't always work but the more I give people license that, that as actors particularly, to say, don't worry about hitting your mark. Don't worry about walking forward on the same line. I want to talk about the golden slate in a second. The more I give them license to, the less they do, actually, the less they do breach that, the more they do. But they own it. They feel they own it. And, and, and performance is all about on screen is all about being absolutely in the moment and if this if you're an actor listening all you can do is be in the moment there's something a point anna maxwell martin made to me your first responsibility is to be in the moment as the camera is running and do all you can for that but the way i can facilitate that as a director i i don't there's a, there's a, there's an order in which you 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 traditionally shoot things. You generally have a scene. You'll shoot a wide shot to show everybody in the on the crew in the unit or the, how it how it plays, what the scene is, and then you'll go in and do your close ups. Um, I don't tend to do that. I have met other directors that don't do this, uh, so I'm not alone. But and I can't remember her name, but I had a beer with a director very recently in a sort of crowded pub, and, and she and I were both. Oh my god, yes, this is what I do, but. I do a golden slate first, which is which is the bones, the balls of the scene. What if, if a, with a gun to my head, what slate, even if it wasn't continuously perfect, what would best represent and hold the heart of the actual scene? And with my camera operator, who of late has been Tom Weldon, he and I say, okay, what's our slate? What's the golden slate? And one of the first questions that DPs come to ask me is, okay, what's your golden slate? What's your... And then once we find that, and that can take, eight, nine takes that can take where we interrogate it and do it different, sit down later, don't sit down, try over there, get angrier, be ambivalent, don't interrupt him. All of these, sort of, we try it all. And when we've done that, we know what the, we know what the scene is. And then we can, we can, I can get the other coverage, if you like, that I, that I need in order to control the pace, control the story, to all the other things that, that filmmaking needs to show the scale, to show the money, show the location, all of those other things that, that are, that are important, but it, but what it does is produce a, a sort of edgy muscularity to the direction, which I think uh, to the scenes, which I think is essential, and not just sort of trotted out mid shot, wide shot, mid, close up. Everybody just dies. Part of us die inside when when we shoot that way. I think it's also again a great tidbit of info about what a golden slate is and how you go about trying to get that. And especially on a show like this where it's very sort of dialogue heavy, so you're going to have a lot of reaction shots of people and sort of ha capturing people's poker faces rather than 
shock about the news. Um, and then because it is in that spy world, it's like they don't want to play their cards too early and figure out and, and get themselves into trouble. I think as well, like with getting that, those sort of things in place as well, it's like, it seems like there's a lot of, I, know, I think like on set as well as a director, there must be sort of a lot of things going through your mind to make sure that you can get what you need to get because there are certain directors who will do hundreds and hundreds of takes of somebody walking across a hallway uh, because they're not walking correctly or something like that but at the same time there's it seems like a better way to sort of streamline it in that sort of way as well i i i can't you know far be it from me to say directors who do 80 takes don't need 80 takes i'm not there i don't know i don't know and you know Kubrick made some pretty good films and he's famed for, for for these endless takes. So God knows I can't lecture anybody on that. It's just the way you make the film. They make you make the film in your head. Truly, you work out what it's about, you close your eyes, you see the film, and you go and set about making that and make sure you're sort of listening on the way as as you do. And I think that that's incredibly energetic. That's a, that you what you are on set, you do have to concentrate, but it has its own, it brings its own focus in truth but the point you make about the reaction is incredibly incredibly true and and fair play to you robert that's a really good observation i think of all the things i've made i would say compared to almost all other shows more of this film more of this series is looking at people not talking while someone else is talking than the other way around. It is incredibly reaction heavy. And that's something that's an editor's choice, of course. It's not that we didn't film people talking, but we found in the edit that exactly what you pointed out, what are they, how are they taking this? Are they buying it? Are they securing themselves? Are they destabilized by that? Uh, the reaction was incredibly heavy and i i i don't i would like to go back and just a- and codify and analyze what cassavetes what killing of a chinese bookie or what how much of those films are reaction i suspect a great deal certainly woman under the influence is a huge amount of reaction it isn't just about the the collapse of the woman it's about the, it's about his inco- in, in, inconsolable sort of um sadness about the situation so that was very that was that that's an editorial decision. But the, but there in edit, in in the cutting room and um, Matt Gray and uh, and Adele Donald the um, did it's a, they're so great to work with. Uh, they are two editors and they doing you know doing odd numbers and even numbers across the series. And we we made sure that not only that was something we were always more interested in, but they were very strict with themselves to react late. If, if, as we're trying to suggest to the audience that, that we are not the filmmaker, well, the filmmaker isn't in control, I didn't want to be ready on people when they started to speak. I didn't want to be on doors before they enter. I don't want to be panning at the right time to hit the line. I don't want to be on a wine glass that crosses the room and then as we arrive, this conversation starts. I want it all to be accidental. And so from an editing point of view, um, it goes back to that fundamental decision you make as a director. Am I in charge or is the, or are the characters in charge? From an editing point of view, we found ourselves just editing, just cutting, you know, 18, 20 frames late all the time. Just, just wait, just go late, go late, go late, react, react, react. And on, on, and on a level, I don't think many in the audience will spot 
but they'll absolutely feel um, that uh, that that is, is marbled throughout that that style permeates the entire series. Yes, and on top of that, like it's such a great way of like getting a feel of the director, not director, sorry, a feel of the character, what they're internalizing, because it's also did they know about this tidbit of information, or is this the little tidbit of information that kind of you know solves that not necessarily solves their puzzle but adds to the adds to the puzzle or even adds to their woes which which again is like interesting to to see as a viewer and follow the character on that journey i know we're kind of going to be near the end of our time but i just have one last question which i'm i'm curious to know about um because i'm not it, it might play into it it might not but as a director because you're doing a story that's based on true events even though you do have a character there that's um made up for mm. um the show is there ever ever in like when you're creating something like this is there ever a thought of like morality in making not making but as in in your or stylistic choices in being towards real life people because i guess depends on how you see it some people might see the betrayal as you know very much sacrilege but or they might see it as like a understanding but as a director do you ever want to bring that sort of morality to uh, the screen in terms of just being respectful to who the people were but then on top of that be respectful to the people that were affected as well yeah i i that's that's very true i made a lot of factual dramas I used to make documentaries actually a lot of factual dramas and, and to a greater or lesser extent that is always the case so i've made but it depends on proximity it depends on the Time proximity depends on what you're, what you are, who you are depicting. But I've, I've made, you know, I, nobody cares if you're going to show Emperor Nero to be slightly more mad than he was, or, or whatever. You, there isn't a, there's a historical, interesting discussion there, but there's not an ethical thing in the same way. But I've also made a very, very true story of, uh, with again with Jimmy Nesbitt and Genevieve O'Reilly about um, two people in in Northern Ireland in Coleraine in the 90s who killed their husband and wife, their respective partners made it look like a double suicide and got away with it for 14 years shameful appalling grotesque okay so you can say okay all bets are off we can make them look shameful look appalling we can we can and we should but but they're also victims and the children of victims and um in the case of one of the victims they didn't want us to make the show and uh we made a show that was already in the public domain it was based on a book um called let's be our secret so we weren't breaching anything but there was very much an ethical obligation there to not depict them or their families or the victims in ways that were unfair and in many ways not to depict the the people the murderers in a way that was untrue or unfair so we ended up not being able to make anything up um we had to we dramatized scenes but we had to know the scene had happened we had to know the substance of what of that meeting had produced the decision to kill people the the night in question that he did this he did that he ran the hose pipe across the room he stuck it in the back of the car and that we know the mechanics of it is that true of spy among friends no we we are much more fast and loose because what we are making up what we've invented for dramatic effect are not assassinations of either character or the characters they are embellishing and enriching the 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 essence of the espionage plot did did the cia have working operatives in moscow watching kim philby at the time no evidence no evidence of that at all but it was 
enough to personify that in uh, the the obsessive interest of James G- Jesus Angleton from the CIA in his pursuit of what the hell Phil Boo was up to as part of his heartbreak. So that was legitimate. Could we make Angleton look like uh, corrupt or more stupid than we had evidence to suggest he he was? No. Could, and it goes to Kim Philby, I never felt, Kim Philby was, a, I, I believe he was a communist. I think he was a genuine communist. I also believe he was a sociopath. Um, it's only my personal belief. But it isn't, I'm not absolutely sure why it's so bad to betray your country. I, I'm not, I don't absolutely get that. If he believed in what he believed about the, the the power balance across Europe and the need, the only way of fighting the fascists was, um, which of course the end of the war was the primary, primary objective of, 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 uh, of the Axis powers, then communism was a good bet. Um, and I, so I've never, we never, and Guy was very adamant about this. Philby did was dishonest and was cruel and was into some people and was hurtful to many people, but he cared about oh, his betrayal of his country. Wasn't the worst thing he did. And I think we're very careful not to paint that. Yeah. There's huge personal impacts of that. I do think something, something Alex said very early on is Philby, was a communist but did not want to be a russian and that i think is the is 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 at the heart of of uh, the dilemma that philby finds himself in but i don't think you can just suddenly say boo hiss he's a baddie he's about why he's a baddie because he acted yes of course people died people will have very possibly died because of the actions of of mi6 in the same period he acted in the interests of his political beliefs and i don't remember him signing anything that said he wouldn't always do that so i think that we need to be a bit careful as dramatists that we don't just put hand out who's wearing a white hat and who's wearing a black hat and get on with it this this show absolutely doesn't do that um who's a good friend and who isn't different matter you can be objective about that who is honest with their friendships and who isn't different matter but i don't uh, we haven't we haven't thrown stones or drawn accusations with regards to the right and wrongs of what philby did politically i think that sort of thing always sort of plays on my mind not necessarily like play, maybe not plays, but it's more of a sort of curiosity of like how when people are making TV shows like this or films um, where it is based on true on real people and how I do like that. As you said, that there's there's no real way of showing it as like somebody with a white hat and then a black hat as being good and bad, especially like in a spy world where there's a lot of grey. Um, shall we say, in the way that people make decisions and what you think is right and what is wrong. Um, on top of Quite also, so. yeah. in terms of as well, like obtaining your country, but then in you know that could be seen in somebody else's eyes as just a Tuesday, or somebody else could be very like offended by it. But on top of that as well, like I, I think you made that interesting point that you know he wanted to be a communist but not a Russian, and I think that again in the show it kind of shows how. Uh, difficult it was for him uh, to acclimatize to living in Russia and what it's like and being being and that, that was very world. accurate. That much of it was very accurate. The conditions in which he lived, what Moscow was like then. I went to Moscow in the in eighty five as a as a as a young man, as a young as a teenager, and it 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 stuck with me so much. So I was very able to. I was sure of myself in in how we were representing the that end of his story. I I, I think honesty is 
is a tool in drama. I don't think it's an essential ingredient, and nor do I think, but it's also a very useful tool. I, I, I know when we're making The Secret, it was, very, it was very helpful to be able to resort to the truth, to always go back to the truth. Mark Redhead, my producer, who'd made Bloody Sunday with, with Paul Greengrass, knew what he was talking about. He made, he made The Death of Stephen Lawrence, a fantastic film with Paul, a harrowing film with Paul. But he was the one who said, "Use it as a, use. It, go back to it. Use it. Use the fact that it's true. Go back and lean on it. Don't hide it. Don't don't avoid it." When I was saying, "Can we say? Can we just say?" You saying, "No, no. We don't avoid it. We we we've got to play a straight battle. Otherwise, we lose the moral high ground on making it." I but my first drama was about Chernobyl many years before Craig Mazin did his wonderful series, and the same the same was true. I couldn't invent what Valery Legasov was. I conflated characters into two characters into one character or whatever, but I, I couldn't. There's still people suffering from that, still victims of that. I couldn't um, just go and say Brukhanov was guilty and Akimov wasn't. And they, I had to go with what I knew to be true. I couldn't uh, make it up. I think as well when you jump into a whole world of a government sort of controlling what's true, not necessarily controlling what's true and what's not true, but withholding information it then it's like you can get into a massive minefield of what how as a storyteller like what you can use and what you can't use so my mum grew up in poland during communist time so it's like when you hear stories about how that was and how my gran you, you know be you'd be leaving the office after curfew and there's sort of scary stories about that or seeing tanks roll past your school window or even you mentioned chernobyl like one of my friend's mums uh, she was grew up in Poland as well. Like they would give them iodine pills after that accident because they weren't sure if it was in the air in Poland, so they had to be very careful with that. Sure, it, it, it's all incredible sort of history as well. But as like a storyteller as well, it's like I guess going with what is the correct thing to do and what the correct way to push it uh, push the story along, but then also be true to the material. And I think on that note, Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Spy among friends. Been a pleasure. Is- <laughs> Fucking good. Uh, I'll take that. I'll take that. Thank you. Um, a spy amongst friends is streaming now on ITVX. On I think it's in Amazon in Canada, and then on the MGM streaming service, uh, which is also I wouldn't be surprised part of Amazon now. Go out, watch it, and enjoy Nick's works. Work. Sorry. Thanks, everyone. Thank All you. Again. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast.